Excellent, excellent. Y'all can have a seat. How we feeling? Sorry, the lights are a little hot. You guys feeling good? Yeah. Good. Excellent, excellent. Sorry, I just got off camp a couple weeks ago, and so like I feel like I'm supposed to get up and make everybody yell. That's like what you what you do at camp, and so I'm still kind of in that mode a little bit. Romans 13, verse 8. Thanks, guys. Romans 13, verse 8. We're going to start there today. In your journals, if you're still following along in your journals, you need to write out to the side the never-ending debt. The never-ending debt. I'm, I'm not going to sing it. I'm, I'm in Stranger. Who's watching Stranger Things? You guys watched season three yet? I'm not going to give anything away, but when I read never-ending, I just can't help it. You know what I'm saying? It's automatic. Go back to the 80s. Not me, personally, but I know the movie. Some of y'all are like, you, you weren't even thought about in the 80s yet. You're, you're right, I wasn't. The never-ending debt. Write that to the side. Uh, our hope is that when we kind of break down the passages that we're looking at, and when you write maybe some, some like, titles to the side, it helps you to realize or understand how the passages are all broken down, how they cohesively work together in order that like Romans becomes a, kind of a holistic idea, not just a verse at a time. So I want you to see this, so it'll be helpful in your future study or your future reading of Romans. Write the never-ending debt, and let's read that, 13, 8 through 10. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any of the other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, I, I know there's a bunch of mentions throughout Romans to the law. And sometimes it's a generic reference to just laws in general. And sometimes it's specific references to the Old Testament law. So in this portion of the passage, you can maybe circle just as a reminder or a clue to yourself and maybe put to the side OT. That's Old Testament. We're talking about the law, Old Testament law at the end of verses 8 and the end of verse 10. Now, why this is important is because Paul's going to highlight several of the commandments that we see from the Ten Commandments. You guys know what the Ten Commandments is? Okay, good. The Ten Commandments is kind of this overarching idea that we, that we see um, God comes to give the law to the Jews, to Israel at Mount Sinai. And later on, he gives a, like a more complete picture of the law that we see in Leviticus. And so when we see the law, what we're talking about is Leviticus, a little bit of Exodus, a little bit of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And that's why they use kind of just this one idea, the law, to cover all of this. They don't have to reference like the whole first five books of the Bible every single time they talk about it. So when you see the law here in this passage, we're talking specifically about the Old Testament. Paul's trying to frame something for us. He wants to, to point us towards something important. And see, I think a lot of times people get jammed up on the law. Uh, I, I know that in conversations I've had with people who find out that I'm a pastor and want to argue with me about what that should look like and what it should mean, um, which they have lots of opinions about what a pastor should be or shouldn't be, which is very interesting to me. But in moments where I've had conversations with people about what Christianity looks like and what what the Old Testament is, what the New Testament is, and what Jesus is, and all this stuff, the biggest contention that I find with people is that they go to Leviticus and they say stuff like, well, look, look here, you're supposed to kill people based upon these laws. Do you agree with that? It's like, well, 
it's, there's quite, quite a nuanced answer. I can't just, you're, you're, you're pigeon-toeing me. You're putting me into one little spot where I have to say yes or no here. It's like, how often do you beat your wife? I don't. What do you mean? I, like, I, like, I can't say yes or no. You know what I'm saying? I, like, I have to answer based upon the question, so it makes it really difficult. But what I'm trying to say is that the law specifically here is pointing us towards something, and Paul's going to try to frame for us something. And why people get jammed up on it is because it seems harsh, but really there's an intention behind the law that is not harsh. Okay, and so he, he lists some things out here in verses 9 and 10 because he wants to point out that even though there are commandments, there is love behind them. See, the point of the law, yes, was to give a framework for the Jews that they would live a certain way. Absolutely, that's, that's true. The point of the law, of course, is that God wanted to set the Jews aside as a different people. He wanted them to act differently, to be more equitable in their justice one to another. He wanted to elevate the status of women and men and children in his current context and culture. Okay? That's what the law was meant to do. But there's a deeper intention, and it's to point us to God's heart. Somebody say God's heart. That's what Leviticus, that's what Deuteronomy, that's what Numbers and a little bit of Exodus is really trying to point us towards which is the heart of God. Now, there are particular ways that God wants us to live because he doesn't want us to distort the goodness that he has in mind for us, but there's a further intention behind the law than just the words that you're supposed to follow. The same way that the rules in your house have a different intention than, than don't just write on the walls with crayons or, hey, uh, who, who's the dad in here? Don't touch the thermostat, right? Why is it always changing? It's like magic, and no one did it. That's what's even crazier. No one physically came over and touched it somehow. I don't get it. Anyways, but there's an intention behind the rule that you have in your house. Yes, it is to create a, like a cohesive structure in your home where there's kind of, you know, the parents as the head of the house, and we're going to kind of move the house forward in, the, in a way that we see fit, right? But there's a deeper intention behind your rules than just to say don't or do. You want to create honor and trust and respect in your home. You want to create a basis upon which relationship can happen. And where there are no rules, there will be no relationships. Because you can't honor one another if you don't have some ground rules. Does this make sense? And so there's a deeper intention to the law. Leviticus shouldn't scare us. It'll help us go to sleep pretty easily, but it shouldn't scare us. It's it's actually pointing us to something beautiful, and that is God's heart. It's that he loves us and that he has something deeper for us. See, love is greater than the law. Okay, it's above it, but it's also woven within it. Does this make sense? It's also a part of every command. So love creates change in our hearts that translates to a change in our behaviors. And if all we're doing is modifying our behaviors but not getting to the heart issue, then we're not actually going towards what God has for us. It's why you have the prophets. If you guys ever noticed in your Old Testament that it's not just like five little books, there's a bunch of big books where there's a guy saying, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord said. There's a bunch of prophets that talk over and over again in your Old Testament because they're trying to point the people away from the letter of the law and towards the intention or the spirit of the law. They often say things like, your sacrifices don't mean anything. Wait, I thought you were supposed to sacrifice. No, you are, but there's a heart behind why you're supposed to sacrifice. And it's to have a connection and a relationship with a God who loves you and would give you a sacrifice so that you could continue to have a relationship instead of a severed 
relationship due to your sin. Are you guys following along with me so far? Okay, so the law gives us particular sacrifices, particular uh, strictures that we're supposed to follow. And in the Old Testament system, people owed God their obedience to those particulars. But now because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, for those who have placed their faith and trust in him, making him Lord of their lives, they've been justified. Somebody say justified. That means your spiritual bank account has been paid for in full. Completely. There's nothing else to be done. God did it on your behalf. You have been justified. So I want, you to, I want you to follow along with me very clearly for the next few minutes. You and I do not, well, sorry, if you, if you know Jesus as your personal Savior, let me give that caveat, you don't owe God anything in regards to sin. Because he paid for it all. You, you, you don't owe God anything. You can't do enough to make God like you. You can't earn his favor. You already have it. You don't owe God anything. And because you don't owe him anything, you want to give him everything. It's subtle, but it's powerful. You don't owe God anything, and because you don't owe him anything, you want to give him everything. You know the old song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I what a paradox. That doesn't even make sense. What do you mean he paid it all and all to him? That doesn't even work. If he's paid for it, how do you owe anything? You don't owe anything else. But see, that is the point. The point is that Jesus did pay it all, and so now I want to owe something. I desire to pay into this spiritual bank account, not because I can, I can create a zero balance or a plus or minus balance. It's not about a forensic or sterile math equation where I do stuff, A plus B equals God's favor. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way because you and I don't have transformed hearts through love. We need Jesus and Jesus alone. And but see, that, that's the ridiculous part of what God does on our behalf. He gets our sins and we get his righteousness. And when he forgives your sins, he has the power to do so. When he forgives your sins via your uh, placing of your trust in him, making him Lord of your life, saying that he gets to make the decisions and that you're just going to follow along with what he says. See, that transforms your heart to not just follow the particular words of the rules of the laws, but rather to follow the word, Jesus Christ. Y'all follow what I'm saying this morning? Paul tells us now that the only thing we owe is love, okay? Again, follow along with me because it's, it's a little bit confusing. I'm telling you you don't owe anything and here's Paul saying that you owe stuff and Paul's probably smarter than me. I'm just, so let's, let's, follow, let's follow along. Let's follow along with what I'm trying to get at. Paul's telling us that the only thing that we now owe is love. But the difference between love and law is that law is looking for the ceiling. Law is looking for the line. Law is looking for the end of the command. Love doesn't do any of that stuff. Love doesn't keep balance sheets. Love doesn't have a return on investment report that you can look up. Love doesn't worry about who covers the tab. When I go out to dinner with my, um, 
with my stepdad and with my mom. They always pay for it. I mean, every single time. And in fact, one of the things that I, I used to do when I was in college is uh, when I was getting real low on, on money, um, and because I'd spend it on dumb stuff, uh, or, or, or when I just needed some hangout time with my parents, um, we would go out to dinner somewhere. Uh, and they took me to nice places because they weren't, they weren't about to eat McDonald's. You know what I'm saying? I was not above McDonald's at all. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that's where I was living. But, but they wouldn't take me there. They would take me someplace special. And oftentimes, Rachel and I would, would go hang out with my parents, and, and really the, the thing that we would do is we'd go out to eat. And there's always this moment, especially guys understand this, but, but I think just in general, we all feel this moment at the end when the check comes. There's like a, there's like a little eyes around the table moment. And, the, and you kind of do like the one, you, just the little juke, the juke reach. I'm being a little funny, but you know what I'm talking about. There's that moment where, where we're going to decide who's paying for the tab. Or someone's real quick to say, uh, we're, we're, we're separate here, we're splitting. Someone's real quick to say that, especially if it was a bad date. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I'll take care of mine, don't worry. But, but what would happen at the end of meals is uh, there, there would be this moment where, where I and my heart would feel a little bit of tension about maybe I should cover the meal even though I'm like negative five in my bank account right now. I should try my best to cover this meal. M- listen, Mike, Mike, my stepdad, uh, never once said, you got it, you owe me. He, he, never, he never once did that. He never once made a big deal if I ever paid for a meal, which has only happened like once or twice ever. Uh, he, he's, he didn't make a big deal about it um, because he loves me. And anytime I might try to reach for the tab, it's because I love him, not because I'm trying to pay back a debt that I owe. That's, that's not how the parent-child relationship works anyways. How could your children ever pay you back? They can't. <laughs> they, they can't ever pay you back. Listen, this is what I'm telling your youth, by the way, guys. I'm telling, I'm telling the youth in here that parents are wonderful and awesome people. I'm just, so, just so you know, I'm backing you up. Uh, your, your kids can't pay you back. They can't pay back the emotion, the sacrifice, the time that you've given them, the house that you've provided for them, the opportunities that you have given them. They can't pay you back. And you delight to keep paying for them, don't you? This is the beauty of love is that there's no longer a transaction, there's no longer balance sheets, there's no longer scales that need to be weighed out. Mike just covers the tab. And I love him and he loves me. And it doesn't matter how many times he did it or I didn't do it or I did it and he didn't do it. It doesn't matter, that's not the point. The point is that there is no ceiling when it comes to love. There's always more to do. And so when Paul says things like, oh, people love, What he's not talking about is a requirement that you have to meet, but an attitude that should shape your heart. So when I look at things, so I had you write down never-ending debt. This word can be a little confusing because in our context, debt um, means like school or house or car or whatever. Debt is what we are are obliged to to pay. We have to pay it. We're obligated to pay that. We have a contract that we have to pay, and if we don't pay, there's, and if there's a violation of some sort of contract, then we're in trouble. Those possessions that we have don't become ours anymore. See, it doesn't work that way in God's system. 
It's completely upside down. And so when I, when I want you to write down eternal debt, really the word debt I want you to think about is not I'm obligated to pay this off, but rather I, I just want you to see that there's more to do. Does that make sense? There's a debt in the sense that there is always more to do. There's always more to grow and there's always more to achieve. Does this make sense to you guys? Okay. That's really, I want to make sure that's clear because nothing else will make sense if, if, if we don't get that down first. So Paul doesn't want to just leave us like with this out there idea, just love one another, man. You know what I mean? Just whatever. Like that's not what Paul's trying to say. He, he believes that love cannot only be felt. And listen, love is felt. Love is, love is feeling. It, it, it can't just be transactional. How great would your marriage be if it was only transactional? Who, who's watched like the old, uh, oh gosh, like, like the old, old HBO shows like Rome or uh, uh, what's the one, like the Tudors? You guys know what I'm talking about? When, when marriages become transactional, when marriages are just a word but not a felt experience and a lived out um, uh, a desire to show honor to somebody else, then what they become are business transactions. That doesn't sound like a marriage I want to be a part of. A business transaction. I'd rather be a part of a marriage that has love back and forth, mutual honor, mutual respect, and thank goodness I have that. But see, love can't just be spoken or said. It can't just be a legal term. It has to be experienced and lived out, and it will influence everything that you do and everything that you think about. It'll influence where you live, how often you have strangers into your home, how you dress, how many neighbors you know, who you vote for, who you date, and who you marry, what you do with your spare time, what you spend your money on, how you think, what you think about, how often you think about it, to what extent you think about it, what brings you pleasure, and ultimately, where you're going to spend eternity. Love impacts everything, and it must because God is what? Love. It must impact everything because that's exactly how God created everything to work. Now, before we, I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but I want us to look at the word O oh, a little bit more in context because Paul uses it a very specific way to call our attention to what he's trying to say. So let's look at verses 7 through 8. Paid to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. And he starts to turn it a little bit. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Verse 8. Owe no one anything. And if we stop there... Our application for today would be go get out of debt. Um, uh, uh, make sure that you cut up your credit cards and you throw them on the burn pile with the rest of your Elvis music or whatever. Um, make sure that you do the best that you possibly can to, to not owe anybody anything at any time because what a Christian ought to do is be completely out of debt and be perfectly in the clear. In fact, go off the grid, you know what I'm saying? Go like build a bunker somewhere because be careful of all these other crazy people because you won't owe them nothing. But see, that's not what Paul is trying to say. And really, this is not a, a financial passage. This is not about whether you should be in debt or not. Now, I think it's probably good practice to not be in debt. 
I think that's probably good practice. It really would benefit you. It would help create margin in your life. Therefore, you could be more giving. But if, we, if all we talk about today is our financial obligation to not be in debt, then what we've done is we've turned our, uh, our desire and our understanding to please God, and instead we've gone back to mammon, the old scripture will say. And we've made money our God all over again. And all we have to try to do is, is strive to do our best to get out of debt. And here's how we're going to scheme and plan to get out of debt because we can't be in debt. Christians, if you're a good Christian, you're not in debt. Uh, that's not even how our system is set up to operate. How many of you have a home mortgage? Okay, well, you're sinning. No, you're not. That's the point. No, you're not. That's the point. Because here Paul uses O in verse 8 to turn really what O should mean on its head and puts it in a kingdom value. Verse 8, O no one anything except to what? To love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is not really about financial obligation, but the manner in which a Christian should live. If you owe something, that means once you've completed it, there's nothing left to do. And Paul is not saying that you should owe somebody respect, and then once you've given them the respect the one time, you can just forget about them. Paul is not saying that you owe your taxes and your revenue one time, and that once you've done that thing, you, you forget about it forever. Paul is not saying that you honor that person one time and because you've met the requirement of owing someone honor, you never have to worry about it ever again. Now they, now they owe you, don't they? Because you've done something for them, now they owe you. And what Paul is trying to say is that we don't owe that way. What he's wanting us to do is change our minds to look at the reality is that we have a debt of love to everybody. And we never stop paying love to anyone. So Paul is trying to use O to get us into the mentality that it's not a requirement that we meet, but an ideal that we live out. Do you feel the debt of love you owe to Christ? I'm just singing the Your Name is Power song. I'm just thinking about my goodness, this is who God is. His name is power over darkness. Uh, his name is freedom for the captives. I mean, you just go on and on. That's who God is. How could we ever repay him? We, we, we can't. We can't. And he, and he loves that we can't because he loves us and he wants us to love him for his love for us. Does that make sense? I couldn't say it again. Don't ask me to repeat it. But do you feel that debt? Do you feel that there's more to do? Because it's there, it exists. Do you love in such a way that it changes who you are? Not just changes the way you act, but who you are. It changes the way you look at people, the way you think about them, the way you address certain situations. It changes the way that you speak and the way that you spend your money. See, Paul's point is not money, but love. Love fulfills the law. So owe love. And always owe it. And always look to others as if you owe them something else. I know the moment that I don't owe somebody some, something, the moment I'm all of a sudden on my high horse. When, when someone owes me something, now all of a sudden I'm justified in whatever I have to say and however I have to say it. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to get them. 
And that's not what God wants from us. He wants an attitude of love. He wants to adjust our hearts to be like him. But see, love will manifest itself in our actions. It must. And that is why God's concerned with our actions, not just our heart. Because he doesn't just say, go love people. He wants to actually give us some lanes to follow, some guidelines, okay, to drive within. Not to restrict us, not to restrict us, but to give us um, a fuller appreciation for what love should be and how it should operate. Because what we'll do is we'll distort what love should be and we'll begin to manipulate in order to get to the ends rather than doing the right stuff in order to get to a justified end. Okay, so, so God wants us to do love correctly. Every command has the intention of honor and goodness for yourself and for the other person. Okay, so not, not only are we not to murder someone, but in the commandment is implied that we are to do good to men. Not only are we not to steal from somebody, in the commandment is implied we're supposed to look out for their property. Not only are we not to speak falsely about somebody else, but we are to protect other people's reputations. Imagine that in 2019. Luther, in his shorter catechism, which I'm sure you've all read, says, you shall not kill. Well, what does this really mean? We should fear and love God, and so we should not endanger our neighbor's life, nor cause him any harm, but help and befriend him in every necessity of life. Do you see how much further the command actually should go? Okay, you could be following the command this way. Let me set up a ridiculous scenario for you. Um, You go over to somebody, and now you've heard the command, I should not kill people. Cool, now I get to just beat them up within an inch of their life. Awesome. Well, I followed the command, didn't I? Right? I didn't kill anybody. And if the point is... I'm following the words, then I can beat up whoever I want. It doesn't matter. I can harm anybody I want as long as I don't kill them. If I kill them, then I've crossed the line. But do do you see how ridiculous that is? Implied within the command is not only that we should not beat somebody within an inch of life, but we shouldn't beat anybody. We should uphold one another. We should honor one another. We should protect one another. Life is valuable and sacred. And so we should look out for life. You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God. And so we should lead a chaste and pure life in word and deed, each one loving and honoring his wife or her husband. You shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God, and so we should not rob our neighbor of his money or property, nor bring them into our possession by dishonest trade or by dealing in shoddy wares, but help him to improve and protect his income and property. Not just mow up to your line. Who mows in here? You know the mystical line <laughs> where your property starts and there's and there's ends. You you know the mystical you know it well too. Listen, that that's not what love tries to do. Love goes and mows their neighbor's yard. Because there's more to it than just following the command. There's a positive implication in it. And that's just a silly application of what it could look like in our lives to love one another. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I start this one um, because I think this is really where we live. I don't think many of us are trying to kill people or commit adultery or steal. I think a lot of us, really, our words are, are where we need to maybe start. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We should fear and love God. And so we should not tell lies about our neighbor, nor betray, nor slander or defame him, but should apologize for him. Speak well of him and interpret charitably all that he does. That convicted me like, I'll get out. Because I've got neighbors that I'm just not in love with. You know what I mean? And everything they do is a specific attack against me. Very pointed. And it doesn't have to be. You get what I'm trying to say? And if I view those people that way, then all of a sudden, no, I'm not lying about them. I'm not saying anything necessarily false about them out loud. I'm probably doing it in my own heart. But I'm not doing it out loud. And so, therefore, I'm following the command. But God wants more than you just to follow the particular words. He wants you to follow the spirit and the intention, which is to love our neighbor. And so we don't just not lie. We speak well. It's what Pastor talked about, I think it was a week or two, two weeks ago. Bless people. Bless those who pursue you to persecute you. Bless them. Don't just, not, don't just keep your mouth shut. Go further, because that's what love would call us to do. Because we want to owe love at all points. I think you get the point. It's not about doing a commandment. It's about doing it the right way. Does that make sense? Love does right the right way. Love does right the right way. This is why Paul believes that love is the heart behind the law, because God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God is love, and he desires that we would love him and love one another because in love we will fulfill all the commands. Let's see what he says in verses 9 and 10. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of of the law. These are great, great verses. Do you get his point? That the principal test of love is that it does not harm, it doesn't wound or destroy or seek to alienate. Love seeks a person's best interest, not just your own. We all seek our own best interest. So it's, it's, not, about, it's not about you in this passage, it's about the other person. Love looks out for others and seeks to grow them in maturity. Seeks to grow them in honor and in stature. And this is exactly why your scripture is so important. Because there are specific ways that God wants us to love others. And since he is love, he gets to dictate the terms and conditions upon which love happens. And he wants us to live within those so we don't distort the goodness that he wants for all people because your definition of love might look different than someone else's definition of love and so we need to have a unified definition of love and because God is love he's going to give us the best possible unified definition of what love is Jesus is a great example of what love ought to look like and if you want to know how God would react what God thinks about people 
what he would say in certain situations, the way that he would operate, then we don't have to look any further than Jesus. There are four biographies at the beginning of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell the story of Jesus' life and the teaching that he gave. He wants us to live and look like him, but he doesn't want us to just line up with a set of ideas. He wants us to be in love with a person, Jesus. God doesn't want us just to follow the way of Christ. He doesn't want us to just line up with what he says. He wants us to line up with himself and his heart. Jesus fulfills the law because he lives a perfect life of love. He says, I didn't come to abolish it. What do you mean? That's crazy talk. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to live it out on your behalf because you can't. You can't do it. And that's okay. I know you can't. And so I'm going to provide uh, uh, the ability for you to have a relationship with God via my sacrifice on your behalf. So when we follow after Jesus in love, we do what he did. We fulfill the law. That's a big deal. Because in order to get to God, in order to have a relationship with him, in order to have his righteousness, we have to be perfect in all the law. And since we're not, we need someone to help us. And that person is Jesus. And by his sacrifice on the cross, he's able to forgive your sins, the ways that you didn't follow the law perfectly, not just the particular words of the law, but the spirit and the intent of the law, the ways that you didn't love someone else well, the ways that you did harm someone else, whether physically or, uh, or emotionally. Jesus fulfills that on our behalf, and when we tap into what Jesus is about, and when we have a relationship with love, Love begins to pour within us and out of us and we begin to fulfill the law, reversing the curse of sin. That was your amen moment. Man, I was waiting for it. That's okay. That's okay. We, so we want to meet the requirements. We want to meet the requirements, absolutely. Pay your taxes, pay your revenue, pay honor, pay respect. But we want to go further and we want to go farther. We want to love because love has no ceiling Love has never finished paying because there's a debt. There's more to do. There's more to pay. What might it look like to love your fellow Christian this way? What might it look like to love your friends and your family and your enemies with the type of love that God has for you? Thank goodness that God doesn't send me my love credit score at the end of every month. Is negative credit score a thing? I'm sure I would be there. I don't think it's a thing. I, it doesn't matter. You guys get what I'm trying to say. I, thank goodness that God doesn't keep a, a balance and spreadsheet on me. Because I'd be in trouble. I mean, even, even just yesterday, I, I, I was, I was quick-tempered. I was tired. You know what I'm saying? And so then I could start giving you the rest of my excuses, but they don't matter. Because ultimately, I shouldn't have been rude to my kids and I shouldn't have been quick with my words and I shouldn't have used my physical presence to impose what I wanted to happen in my house. That's not love. That doesn't have gratitude for who my kids are and how much I love them and how much I'm so grateful for, for God giving them to me. That doesn't display honor for them 
what it does is it, it makes them do what I want them to do. I was convicted as I was reading the sermon last night. <laughs> you ever eat your own words sometimes? I sure did. I sure am right now. Thank goodness that God doesn't send me my monthly credit score of love. Instead, Jesus' sacrifice and my faith in him have just paid my account in full forever. That's it. And because God loves me like that, I'm going to strive to love my neighbor as myself. Now, I got to thinking about that. Um, if you look in Romans here, there's a, there's a quote, there's you know, some little quotes around it. Jesus didn't just create this like golden rules, what Christian circles will, will, will call it. Jesus didn't just come up with this idea. Well, I guess technically he did. Um, but, but Jesus didn't just speak it in the New Testament. It's the first time we see it. Actually, we see it back in the Old Testament. We see it in Leviticus. And this is why Leviticus is such an interesting book for us because people want to parcel out just the specific laws that they really don't like and then they miss the really beautiful things that God says. I want you to go to Leviticus chapter 19. It's not in the notes. This is an audible I'm calling. Leviticus chapter 19. How many of you thought you were going to read Leviticus 19 today? Leviticus 19. We got one. 9 through 18. I want to read this for you. You can follow along if you want. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. This goes directly against how we operate in our economic system. We take everything and we use everything. God gives them a specific command to not take everything, to not use everything, because you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the God that we serve. His name is power. His name is freedom. He is love. And he's the same God of the Old Testament that he is in the New. The, the point the intention behind the law is to show love, not to be obligated to words, but to always be looking as to how you would, how you would pay someone else in love, how you, would, how you would do your best to show honor and respect. So this week, I would challenge you to assess where you have settled into obligation in your relationship with God. Do you view your relationship with God as a transaction? Do you think you have a debt that you have to pay over and over again with your obedience? 
Have you even thought about it? Do you pray the prayer of salvation over and over again? Every time, every time you have an opportunity to accept Jesus into your heart, do you pray that because you're scared you didn't mean it the last time? Do you view God like a taskmaster making you do stuff so he'll like you? Let me help you rest this morning. The tab is covered. The tab is covered. There's nothing else to do. Listen, if you're praying the prayer of salvation over and over again, I think you mean it. I think you mean it. I think God sees that and he loves you. So now let's grow beyond that moment and let's see what else he has for us. God doesn't lose his stuff. Do you know that? Even when the sheep wanders off, you guys know the, the, the story that Jesus gives of the 99 sheep and there's the one that gets lost? Listen, Jesus didn't lose that one. He went and found it. And he secured it and he bound it up and he brought it back to the fold. Jesus doesn't lose his stuff. He can't. In fact, Hebrews tells us that you can't sacrifice Jesus over and over and over and over and over again to keep gaining salvation over and over and over again. Hebrews goes directly against that. Hebrews tells us that it was a one-time sacrifice for all, forever. You don't have to pray the prayer of salvation over and over again. And if you are, I just want you to rest and know that God loves you and that your tab is covered. He's got you. Now he wants you to grow from that, and he wants you to live for him. It reminds me of the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. And she deserved judgment. But Jesus, instead of allowing the people who brought her to stone her, to kill her the way justice demanded, he instead sits down in the dirt and starts to write something. And he just asks one question. Hey, if any of you have not sinned, then go ahead and cast the first stone. And he just, you know, like an OG, just bends on the ground, starts writing something. It's wild to me. And all the people leave because they recognize their error. But God doesn't just say, okay, I love you. He goes one step further. He says, now go and sin no more. So love has, a, has an implication. Gratitude has an implication for our lives in the way that we should live. We want to grow from the moments that we've had. We want to mature into what God has us to do. Listen, because God's always got your bill, you can't fail so hard that he won't save you. And you can't go beyond his grace. Because you didn't earn it in the first place. He gave it to you regardless. And he loves you that way. This has to change us. This has to change our behaviors. And we'll talk about that a little more next week. But do you uh, love others like God loves you? That's a great question. Do you go out of your way to honor another person? Are your words loving and affectionate or are they sharp and quick to create the results you desire? Paul's challenge for us in the first part of Romans 13, or last part of Romans 13 is to change your view we don't technically owe anyone, but we should live like we do. That's a good way for Christians to live. I should love you, because this is how God loves me. And I find this to be true. It seems that an encounter with someone who's genuine, an encounter with someone who's real, an encounter with someone who really loves, 
will change people. How often have we heard stories about students who walk in and they find a teacher who loves them deeply and who wants to see the best in their life? It changes their trajectory. Maybe they're the first person to go to college in their family or whatever, and they begin to have a successful life because of the transformative relationship that they experienced with that teacher or that trusted adult. How many of you at one time had a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Didn't, didn't that change the way you acted? I mean, love certainly motivated you to go out of your way, to drive all kind of miles, to stay up all kind of hours, talk on the phone or text or whatever, whatever generation you are, to send love notes, you know what I'm saying? Even if the teacher's going to find it, it doesn't matter. You're going to pass it regardless. Love certainly motivated you to go out of your way to seek time with that person. Love certainly motivates a marriage, a commitment back and forth even when things are rough, even when things are difficult. We're committed to one another. We're not going anywhere. Love certainly motivates the way that a marriage spends money, a way that they guide their children in a way that they talk to one another. This is what God wants for us. This is what God wants for us. He wants our love for him to permeate all of us and motivate us to spend our time, our emotions, our effort, leverage our influence, and ultimately give our hearts to him. This is what it should be. We owe God, not because we owe him, not because we owe him anything. We don't, not technically. But because we don't, we want to give him everything. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. It's ridiculous how good you are. It doesn't even make sense. And that's why we can have gratitude. That's why we praise your name. That's why we sing songs of praise and of worship and of thankfulness. It's why we pray and try to sync up with your heart because your love is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense that you would get my sin and I get your righteousness. Father, I want to live like I owe people love. I want to change my view. And I want to reflect you. Father, I know that there are steps, there are things that I have to do this week. There's things that I've got to repent of first. There's things that I have to address in my own life. There's ways that my heart has not been connected with you in the way that that was lived out was really improper and really uh, really terrible towards the people that I love and hold close. So I have to go make some apologies this week and I have to go and get my heart right with you. I think it's probably the same of those of us in this room this morning. Father, help us to deal with where we're not being loving. Help us to recognize and assess where our relationships need a little bit of tweaking and where we need to refocus back on you this week. Help our language to reflect your heart and to reflect your desires in our lives. You desire to honor us and to lift us high. But first we have to honor you and lift you high. First we have to recognize your place in our lives and it's so above. Help us to look at the other people in our lives this week, the people in our circles, as if we owe them something. Even though we don't, We want to. We want to pay love. And we want to go past the ceiling of love 
or rather of obligation. We want to go beyond obligation and into your heart. Help us to love others well this week. Help us to abandon our mindsets and our ideals of what it should look like in our lives and help us instead to look out for others. Help us to not only follow the words of the law, but help us to follow the intention of the law, which is to line up with your heart and in so display your glory and your honor. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have life, everlasting life, life with God, life for God. If you've not made a, a, a commitment or a decision to make Jesus your personal Savior, I'm going to give you a chance here. You can kind of make the words your own, and you can... It's really not the words that matter. It's the intention. It's the, it's the belief in your heart. I'm going to pray these words, and if you'd like to make that decision today, if you'd like to be a part of what God has for your life, a life full of love and purpose, a life full of honor and uplifting others, then just pray like this. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you love me. I recognize that I've not done everything perfectly the way that you've asked me to that there are things in, in, your, in your commandments, there, there are ways that you've asked me to love others and to love you that I've not done perfectly. But I recognize and see that Jesus did on my behalf. Thank you that you would offer forgiveness for me. I accept that forgiveness. I believe that you can. I believe that you would. Would you forgive me of all my sins? Would you help me to live for you? Would you change my heart so much that I begin to, to, to live out of love rather than obligation? Would you change my mind? Would you change my heart to be more like you in every single way? Thank you for loving me in Jesus' name. Amen. If you made some sort of decision today, whether it's starting a relationship with Jesus, if you need to come join this church, if you need to start up a discipleship relationship, if there's anything that you need to decide, if you need prayer this morning, come to the front, please. We'd love to recognize those decisions. We'd love to be a part of what's going on in your life if you need prayer. Whatever it might be, come forward this morning during the song and let us know how we can best partner with you now to live out this thing that God has for us, which is love and love for one another. Let's stand as we sing.